If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, I'd invite you to open it with me to the book of Isaiah. To the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it should be printed for you in the insert in your bulletin. We do have some Bibles on the back cart uh, to the left of the doors going out that you can use. And I'd encourage you to do so. As you've seen already, as I've already mentioned, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent simply means coming. So it's a season of time where we focus on the coming of our Lord Jesus in the flesh and we anticipate the coming again of the Lord Jesus in the flesh and in the glory for us, his bride. Now, we've done that every December since I have been here in some fashion. We have focused on the Lord Jesus in an intensive way through his word. We've done that in various ways. And uh, this month, I've decided to focus our hearts on the servant songs of Isaiah. The servant songs of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a uh, writer. It's a biblical, he's a biblical author that's been ringing in our ears recently. Those of you who have been here, Isaiah has been our Old Testament scripture reading for quite some time, on and off actually for several years. And so we have gotten to know a bit of Isaiah's voice. He is what we call a major prophet. Uh, It's not necessarily because he's more important than the other prophets. It's just due to the fact that his book is really big. (laughs) And uh, he's got this this big volume uh, in the middle of the scriptures. Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied in the 8th century BC in the times of uh, Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, these kings of God's people. Because of the sheer volume of Isaiah's book, some scholars have wanted to divide his book up into multiple authors. And we don't have time to go build a case why that's not true. You can talk to Dr. Capshaw. He'll give you an earful, I'm sure, about why Isaiah ought to be thought about as a unified whole. I'm just going to say that all of Isaiah was written by Isaiah. And I think Ancient history tells us that. I think the book tells us that and leads us that. The New Testament gives us evidence of that as well. Nevertheless, uh, the book of Isaiah is divided, as many of you know, into three books. Chapters 1 through 39 are spoken as a warning to God's people on the threat of uh, the Assyrians. In chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah's visions carry him across time as he prophesies to the 6th century to those who were in Babylonian exile, and he seeks to bring comfort to them from the Lord. And then in chapters 56 through 66, Isaiah prophesies about all times, uh, addressing the return to exiles and subsequent generations. Now, there's not going to be a quiz on that later. I simply say all that to set up this study of the servant songs and to say that these four Sundays of servant songs that we're going to walk through are all found in the second book, chapters 40 through 55. It's sometimes called the book of consolation or the book of comfort. And if you know a little of your Bible, you might remember Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. We read it earlier. Comfort, comfort my people. 
says the Lord. That's how book two begins. And so all these servant songs that we're going to look at in the month of December for the next four weeks are found in this second book of comfort. They are written to a people in exile, to a people disillusioned, to a people discouraged, to a people that have no real king, that have no true worship. They need hope. And Isaiah comes with the word of the Lord and says, God is on the move. Oh, that's, that's news we need to hear. Listen with me, and if you're able, I'd invite you this morning to stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Listen as I read. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and the prison. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no others, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. with liberty and justice for all. If I say that phrase, what comes to your mind? It's a phrase from our nation's Pledge of Allegiance. It's a phrase that's etched in our collective consciousness and and conversation. And perhaps more than ever, as a nation, we, we long for liberty and justice for all. The $64,000 question, as they say, is what does this look like? What does justice look like? What does liberty look like? And and how do we get there? We're in the midst of an election season in our nation. I'm not sure if I need to remind you of that fact or not. Probably not, unfortunately. But there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a lot of ideas being championed both towards the goal of liberty and justice for all and concerning what that goal is. We gather this morning as Americans, a few Canadians sprinkled in, 
but more importantly, as the body of Christ, as citizens of another nation, as citizens of another kingdom. And we need not look to Fox News, we need not look to CNN to answer the questions of what liberty and justice look like, but we go here. We go to God's Word. This prophet Isaiah, who lived some 3,000 years ago, 700 years or so before the coming of Jesus, he brings news here to the people of God, news that he didn't fully understand, news that he could not possibly even imagine. Into a world of hurt, someone's coming. The servant is coming. And, and he is who God's people need. He is who everyone in the world needs. So I want to spend the next few minutes unpacking this first servant song and really setting up the, the next four Sundays, really, as we look at subsequent servant songs. This song, verses one through nine, divides nicely into two sections. Verses one through four, you can see it's divided there by a stanza. Verses one through four speak of the servant of the Lord. Verses five through nine speak to the servant of the Lord. And so we're going to use that division to our favor as we walk through this passage and, and let God's word speak to us. And I, I want to do so with two truths, one from each section. And the first truth is this. Behold, the servant comes to make things right. Behold, the servant comes to make things right right. Our passage begins with this word, behold. It's a word that we see all over the book of Isaiah dozens and dozens of times. It's a word, it's a phrase that, that we use. Would you look at this? Look at that. Isaiah is calling our attention to something important. There's something that needs to be seen. There's something that needs to be considered immediately. Behold, the servant comes to make things right. And the one who's speaking here through the prophet Isaiah is, is Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Israel, the Lord of heaven and earth, despite the circumstances of his people. Remember, this is book two. So this is when God's people are in exile in Babylon. Despite the circumstances of God's people, Yahweh has not been defeated. Yahweh has not forgotten about his people. To the contrary, Yahweh is sending someone soon. The question is, who is this servant? <laughs> it's a pretty important question to get right. We've been reading through Isaiah for some time, and this is not the first time we've heard that phrase, the servant. Just one chapter back in uh, 41.8, if you have your Bibles there, you can look at it with me. We read, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, 
And indeed, the servant of the Lord is spoken of a lot in Isaiah as Israel. And yet, in this passage, there seems to be a distinct person that is being spoken of, a title given to a specific person. So maybe it's Cyrus. Who is Cyrus, you say? Well, some of you remember that name Cyrus. Cyrus was a pagan Persian king who will soon, in terms of the sixth century when God's people are in exile, he will soon uh, restore God's people. He will defeat Babylon and let them return to the land of promise, let them return to Jerusalem. And so in an immediate sense, we might say Cyrus is God's chosen instrument in history. God does move history on behalf of his people. He does turn the hearts of kings, and he did turn the heart of Cyrus. Cyrus was his chosen servant. But here's the thing. You know, as well as I do, that the language that is spoken here is so much greater and grander than a mere pagan king, than a shadowy figure in the annals of ancient history. Besides that fact, 600 years after God's people are restored to the land of promise under Cyrus, 600 years after that, they'll lose it all again. The restoration Cyrus gives is incomplete because, of course, this passage is speaking of and longing for someone better than Cyrus. An exodus more significant than simply a return to the dirt of Jerusalem. This is speaking of the person and work of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter 12 with me, Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Familiar passage to many of you. Jesus had just healed a man's withered hand and he had gained the attention of the Pharisees who were increasingly frustrated with this man. In verse 15 of Matthew chapter 12, we read this. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. You see, the servant of the Lord here is Jesus. And as the apostles spread the news of the risen Christ in the book of Acts, they continually refer to him as the servant of God. Jesus is the servant par excellence. And so this passage then, and all the passages that we're going to look at in the weeks to come, are portraits of our gracious Savior. How he came, 
how he was, how he is presently, and how he will be always. This is a servant who is chosen, who is delighted in, who is fully equipped for his mission. And so let's look more closely at this description in Isaiah chapter 42, this servant who comes to make things right. First of all, notice that this servant has the Father's pleasure. Jesus has the Father's pleasure. Verse one, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Our our minds go to the baptism of Jesus in the New Testament when the voice of the Father audibly spoke from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then again in Matthew 17 in his transfiguration upon the mountain when he was transformed before his disciples. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus said that he came to do the will of his father, not his own. He wrestled and he prayed and he pleaded in the garden, but he said ultimately, not my will, but your will be done. I am your servant. And the father delighted in Jesus. The father delighted in his obedience. And he upheld him. He upheld him as a result. Verse six, look at that image given in verse six. I know I'm jumping down to the second stanza, but he says, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Part of the keeping of the Father on the Son is the presence of His Spirit. The Spirit poured out upon the Son, the Spirit of power, the Spirit of wisdom, and the servant of the Lord here, Jesus, is given an ample supply of both. And it's this identity given by the Father that equips him for his mission. Now, what's his mission? That's his identity, but what's his mission? Well, there's a key word that's repeated in these first verses over and over and over again, three times. The word is justice. Justice. Verse one, he will bring forth justice. Verse three, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse four, until he has established justice. Now, a question for us is, what do we think about when we think about the word justice? What comes to our mind? Well, my guess, first of all, is that we think, we tend to think too narrowly about justice, right? Some of us just think about issues. We think about political or societal issues. We think about social justice. Jesus came to bring social justice some want to say. Secondly, some of us think about justice not just too narrowly, but we think about justice too harshly, right? Even the word itself has an edge to it, a heaviness to it. The strong arm of the law is required to bring justice. Give me a robe, give me a gavel, slam that thing down. That is justice. 
Thirdly, maybe you think about justice not just narrowly, not just too narrowly, not just too harshly, but too incompletely. Think about this scenario for a moment. Your car has been stolen. You report it. Three days after you report it, you get a call from the police. We, we've got your car. We've got the guy who stole it. You can come get it. Rest assured, we'll be in contact. Keep this guy from doing this ever again. But you go to get your car, and your car is thrashed inside and out. It is a mess. Has justice really been done? The guy's been caught. Is that justice? Well, partly. But it's not full justice. It's not true justice. Because the strong arm of the law has done all that it can. It really can't bring about true justice. It can't bring about true restoration. We need better justice. And that better justice is what Isaiah is speaking of here in Isaiah chapter 42. The Hebrew word that he uses here is is wide. It's it's broad. It's a word that really encompasses all of true religion. It's the same word that is used in Exodus 26.30 where the Lord is giving instructions to Moses about the building of the tabernacle. And he says this, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan, according to the pattern for it that you were shown on the mountain. That's justice. The pattern, the plan. So the point is that the servant of the Lord, that Jesus comes not merely to bring about some new social program, but to truly restore. To restore to how things were meant to be, how God designed them to be. A blueprint for human existence. Shalom, peace that only the Prince of Peace can bring. That's the justice that is being talked about. It is big and it is wide and only the servant Jesus can do it. Behold, the servant comes to make things right. And part of the wonder is how he will do it, right? That's part of the the beautiful portrait that is painted here by Isaiah. Not just what he comes to do, what it is, but how he comes to do it. Not with the strong arm of the law. Not with the forceful will of the conqueror. That's how Cyrus will do it. Look back at 41, chapter 41, verse 25. Speaking of Cyrus, he will, shall trample on rulers as mortar, as the potter treads clay. That's how the world does it. That's how the world brings about justice. That's how the Israelites wanted the Messiah to bring about justice. That's how they expected the Messiah to bring about justice. But the servant of the Lord that Isaiah speaks of, the servant Jesus will come as that, a servant. 
He will not promote himself, the song says. He will not lash out with angry rhetoric on the streets, but through quiet, powerful, subversive instruction, through meekness rather than arrogance, Jesus will begin to restore all things. Not only that, but his treatment of the weak and the wounded is contrary to how those in power normally treat the weak and the wounded. Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century minister and philosopher, said this, a a majestic person, we know this about our experience, a majestic person is even more majestic for not always acting majestic. And the servant comes, not with loud, brash tones, but with meekness, and it's all the more powerful. We say when our kids get hurt or when we get hurt, oh, it's just a bruise. It's just a bruise. In our world, a bruise is minor. In the Hebrew language, when it talks here about a bruise, read, this is much more severe. The word can also be translated crushed. This is not a, a surfacey wound. This is a, a deep internal contusion, something that can be even be life-threatening. And so Isaiah gives this picture in the ancient world of a reed growing in marshy banks with shallow roots, damaged by the wind, ready to collapse under any kind of force. And that picture comes to us, broken and battered, weak and ready to succumb. Jesus comes, he condescends, and he begins to restore. A bruised reed he will not break. In fact, people like this are Jesus' priority. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And this was Jesus' life, binding up the brokenhearted, giving hope to the least of these. All the while fueled by the reserves of the Spirit of the Lord. Verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. He'll set his face to Jerusalem. He'll obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, And it's here where true justice, where true restoration begins, at the cross, where his death becomes our death, our payment, where his righteousness becomes our life, our standing. It begins at the fountainhead of the gospel. That's where true justice, true peace, true shalom comes. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never believed that. You've never assented to that fact. That's where you begin. With Jesus' call, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I know you're broken. I know you're bruised. But it's those kinds of people that I'm after. 
C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful novel that many of you have read, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he had the characters describe this reality of the servant coming to make all things right in this way. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. That's the message of the servant song. Justice comes, the servant, behold, the servant comes to make things right. And before we think about applying this a little more pointedly to our lives, I want to talk for just a moment about the second stanza and about the second truth real briefly. Not only does the servant come to make things right, but we're also called to behold the servant sets captives free. Of course, this is part of making all things right. The two go together. We've talked about justice Here we come to that issue of liberty, liberty and justice for all. What is liberty? Liberty is not doing exactly what I want, exactly what I'd like to do. I'd really like to soar above the Puget Sound like those bald eagles do, but I'm not at liberty to do that. I can't do that. I wasn't made for that. In, some, in, in the same way, I think sometimes we talk about liberty as if we really understand what we're bound to, as if we really understand what we need freedom from. And the Lord speaks through his prophet Isaiah here to the church, to all of humanity, and he reminds us here in these verses that he gives us breath, that he created all, and that through his servant Jesus, a new exodus is coming. Those in the dark will be brought to the light. Those who are blind will be given eyes to see. Those who are stuck in idolatry will be made worshipers. And this comes through the righteousness of God, through Jesus, the sinless one. This comes through the covenant, through the relationship that God sets up and guarantees by his word. When Jesus was on earth, earth, he went to the synagogue in his hometown. He picked up the scroll of Isaiah one day. He pulled it out. Isaiah chapter 61, he read this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sits back down and he says, this has been fulfilled. True liberty comes through Jesus. True justice comes through Jesus. Behold. The servant comes to make things right. The servant comes to set captives free. What does beholding look like? What does beholding entail? Let's close with, with this. Well, as they say, theology always leads to doxology, which always ought to lead to praxis. That's just a fancy way of saying this. Good truth should make us worship and then make us respond. 
As God's word sets before us the servant Jesus, the first thing we do is grab a hold of him. And we say, that is my God. That is my Savior. And I will rejoice and I will rest in him. There is no other. My life is going to be hidden in his life. But you know what? When we do that, when our life becomes hidden in his life, then all of the things spoken to the servant become things that are spoken to you. You are chosen. You are delighted in by the Father. You are upheld by his mighty right hand. And so you not only read Isaiah 42 and you say, thank you, Jesus, you are worthy, but you read Isaiah 42 and you hear the Father speaking to you through Jesus. One of my favorite passages, you know this, I read, I read this a lot, Zephaniah 3 Verses 14 through 17, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, the King of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What a picture. As we rejoice and adore and find ourselves hidden in the servant of the Lord, we become the servants of the Lord. We become those who have that identity spoken over us. And then we, in turn, become those who respond and reflect Jesus, right? His meekness becomes our meekness. His compassion for the bruised and the broken becomes our passion and priority. His all-consuming glory drowns out any idols that are competing for our attention or our allegiance. And his mission of restoration becomes our mission of making all things right as his kingdom and his light breaks into our world. Brothers and sisters, the servant of the Lord comes to make all things right. He comes to set captives free. He is Jesus. He is what this season of waiting and longing is all about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for such wonderful truth, for such a wonderful portrait that you have painted through your servant Isaiah. Father, would you take this truth, plant it deep in us, by the power of your spirit, that we would be changed as a result. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.